Hi, everyone. We are back. Today, we are talking about kids, school, and behavior. Some questions that come up from time to time is, why do my kids act differently in school than they do at home? I have a special guest today who will be talking about all of these things with us, from the why to the how, and diving into some tools on what we can do to make school and home a smooth transition between the two. But first, a listener review. This one comes from Janie L. King, and it reads, Amazing, my go-to podcast for parenting tips, tricks, and advice. Not to mention, listening to this podcast is one of the highlights of my week. Simply sweet and easy to understand, Hill and Ty give you the practical advice you need for spot-on parenting that can be applied right away. Train a child up in the way they should go. Look no further. You have all the good stuff you need right here. Thank you so much, Jamie, for your review. Honestly, it means a lot to us, and I appreciate you listening in. All right, so my guest today is Leah. And Leah, how do I say your last name? Leah Batillo. Leah Batillo. So Leah is a BCBA, just like Tyler, and she is also a special education teacher. She graduated from Gordon College in 2014 with an elementary education major, a linguistics major, and a concentration in special education and English as a second language. So she was the founder of Beyond Disabilities Week at her college and also was able to teach, spend the day with Temple Grandin. If you're in the autism field, you know about Temple Grandin. If not, maybe we should do a podcast on her. <laughs> she also was the project coordinator and a team member of the Accessible Icon Project, an internationally recognized disability project that focuses on changing the handicap sign to an active and engaged image. Tyler and I are all about that. The project has been featured on programs such as Good Morning America, CNN, BBC, NPR, and the Chronicle of Higher Education in the Boston Globe. In 2017, she received her master's in applied behavioral analysis with an emphasis in autism from Ball State. She is the proud writer and commentator on her blog for teachers called Teacher Talk for All, and most recently, her new Instagram, which we found her on, called Parent Tools. She provides parent training, BCBA supervision in the home setting, and volunteers as special needs consultant in her local community. She also lives in Cranford, New Jersey. We're so happy to have you on, Leah. Hillary, I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Cool, cool. So we're going to dive right in. We hear from time and time again, my kids act differently in school than they do at home. This can go both ways. Either they're really good in school or, and their parents are baffled at conferences as to how their child is so dang good in class or they're way better listeners and better behaved at home that they don't understand why they keep having challenges or problems in the classroom. Do you want to hit on this a little bit, Leah? Yeah, I would love to, Hillary. You know, all the time at conferences when I meet with parents or when I work in the home setting as a BCBA, I hear this question time and time again. So when thinking about why a certain behavior happens in one place and not the other, we need to compare the environmental factors of both places. Typically, I find that a school setting is way more structured than a home setting. There's a clear schedule that is followed each day and clear routines that are practiced each and every day. To just name a few, some routines that are common for students is like unpacking and 
packing their school supplies in the morning and afternoon, lining up to go to lunch, putting away toys after recess, starting their do now, and handing in homework. You know, at home, similar routines can be expected, such as making their beds, brushing your teeth, putting away toys, and starting homework when a child comes home from school. But so many times I hear parents say that they can't get their child to do everyday tasks without nagging them. And I find that many parents who I offer parent training to really don't realize the amount of time it takes teachers to teach and practice these routines. If you think about it, starting a do now in class is really similar to starting your homework at school. Unpacking your backpack in class is really similar to unpacking your backpack when you enter the house. And putting away toys at recess is pretty similar to putting away toys at home. But why is there this major difference? Yeah, and that's great. Basically, it's you have to teach them how the routine and schedule goes and model it for them until it becomes second nature. It's not like the teachers have this magic wand, or do they? And kids just automatically follow their direction and schedule. I mean, it's taken some time and learning for them for it to become a habit, which can be something we as parents can do at home. It's just is acknowledging that and taking a small amount of planning, but not much, by simply writing it out every day um, and creating some tasks to practice for routines at home. Yeah, and let me tell you, there is certainly no magic wand, although I know many teachers really wish that was the case. Uh, Really, another thing I want to talk about that I see as a big difference is the concept of clear boundaries. While the school works with kids to provide choices, and we know that that's a really good ABA strategy to provide choice, there are still limited choices allowed because of the setting that the students are in. There are technically more boundaries in place at home than at, at school than at home. Like, for example, you can't skip math every day because you hate math, but can you skip your homework, you know, if you hate Mm -hmm. math? Possibly. You need to walk in the hallway at school. You're not allowed to ever place your hands on another student. And these rules and boundaries are, are agreed upon and constantly reinforced by every single person who teaches in the school. So I kind of think one of the major differences is that between the home and school setting, that school has more clear and defined boundaries. So this is kind of a funny example. Um, And again, I work in the home setting and I know that mealtime can be really challenging. So in school, there's a clear limit for eating. I know this may sound strange, but kids in school only really get 30 minutes to eat their lunch. And lunch is at the same time every day at school And kids aren't allowed to go back into the cafeteria later on. And if they don't choose to eat at that designated time. What's amazing is that somehow all these kids end up eating during their scheduled lunch block. Well, now let's enter into the home setting. The child has way more options during mealtime. They can access the fridge or pantry for a snack if they choose not to eat lunch. There's typically not a visual schedule or time frame given in which eating must take place. Typically, if a child's complaining about something, more attention is given by an parent if they don't want their food or want to eat at a different time. So when it comes to mealtime, kids at home know that there is not a true consistent expectation of when, where, 
and how they need to eat every single day. But at school, there is kind of this clear boundary and time. So I've kind of found that for some kids, having this clear schedule that is timed and written out, having these clear routines and having having positive peer role models can really influence their behavior for the better. And that's sometimes why we see a difference between the home setting and the school setting. I can totally see the lunchtime schedule like you mentioned. I've helped in Larkin and Sloan School during the lunch hour, and they do seem to eat their lunch during that 30-minute time frame. And But at home, we always leave our kids' food out on the table. And I mean, really, I'm going to say it, I do leave it out for hours after dinner time. If my mom is listening, I know this drives her batty. Like even leaving a cup of water on the counter, like she puts it away in the dishwasher right away. But my kids, I feel like they like to graze. But then the points that you just made, they really don't like to graze. I've just kind of allowed it. So like even just last night, Tyler threw away a popcorn bag that hadn't been touched in probably four hours. And then right before bed, suddenly the girls wanted that popcorn bag and it was like a meltdown city. I know we can get better at putting more time limits on eating. And especially when dinner is served, like this is the time that we have to eat. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely harder in the home setting because there's really always not a need to have such a strict guideline or limit. So there's always not that motivation on the parent's end. And in school, if you think about it, there's more of a need to ensure that each child has the opportunity to eat. So we have to stick with the schedule. And we know in ABA, consistency is key. Um, But, you know, at home, it is kind of a different story, but I always say it's something to think about when determining what makes a specific behavior successful in one place and not the other. Because, again, I'm always baffled by this idea that all the kids I work with can eat within the 30 minutes at school, but then when I go into home, I know that it can be a completely different story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, like, what are some differences that you find between the home and school setting? So I think one of the major differences I see between home and school is that there's more academic and social demands in place at school. And this can also cause increased problem behavior at times. So if you think about it, as soon as a student enters a classroom, several academic and social demands are in place. They must walk to their seat, they need to unpack, find a pencil, start their do now, And then they have the social demand to do this quietly or say hi to a peer. That's a lot going on. And that's pretty standard in almost any grade level between K to 12. So it's just interesting to see how many things a child needs to do right off the bat. So if a child typically tends to avoid or escape academic or social demands, the school environment can increase problem behavior since more events that occur in the school setting are aversive, or it's things that the child just does not like. If the child finds writing extremely difficult or math really hard, they're more likely to come in contact with that demand in school than at home. Thus, like problem behavior can be more likely in the school environment since the antecedent or the trigger occurs more in that setting. Same thing goes, you know, if a child's behavior is maintained by attention. The classroom naturally just has a bigger audience for that child's behavior. 
So if a child does something silly or funny, they're more likely to get more laughs in a classroom for saying that comment than in the home setting simply due to the number of people available. So those are kind of the two main differences um, that I see. But I think another one to really note is that some students may act out more in school because they feel like they're less in control and they have a little bit of less freedom or access to things that they like. So for example, you know, a child can't do their favorite video game during reading time, or they may be required to sit in a chair when they rather be playing outside. So I think that's definitely um, a factor as well. And I always say this to my parents and even, you know, the teachers who I work with, when we're analyzing, you know, why problem behavior is occurring, we really need to analyze the environmental factors that support the child behaving well and the factors that kind of trigger that problem behavior. And those are kind of the main differences that I see for most children across the board. Yeah, I completely agree. And just like on a small tangent here, I know that a lot of the best teachers can kind of decipher what works individually for each kid in their classroom. Like, for instance, I can think of uh, a couple parents who their child likes to stand up when they're doing math homework, and then the teacher has requested getting them a standing desk because they got ants in their pants and they work much better standing up. But I feel like those are some of the best teachers that are able to kind of individualize types of behavior or um, environmental factors that will trigger any type of problem behavior. Um, so they're able to do that, you know, individually for the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I definitely do on the regular. Um, we have, you know, students sitting up, sitting on the carpet, and you provide choice, so you kind of lessen the problem behavior. And I just think that's where applied behavior analysis is so important within this school setting, because we've really yeah. changed the way that teachers think about problems. Totally, totally. And, and yeah. And that's what Leah, and just for any of our listeners, when she was saying ABA, that's what she's talking about is uh, applied um, behavioral analysis. So that's what she's talking about when she means ABA, which some, most of our listeners know, but that's kind of the science of behavior, right? Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Right? Okay. absolutely. <laughs> um, so let's transition here. Like, What are some easy types of visual schedules that parents can do easily at home? I honestly think one of the easiest things a parent can do at home is using a checklist. So for younger kids, I make checklists with simple statements and a picture to match it. And that visual is really big for those kids, especially if a child cannot read. That's where the picture is stating the directions and kind of serving as a model of what to do. For older kids and those with typical language development, I generally fade the pictures and just include the instructions. In saying that, of course, everything you do needs to be individualized for a child. Mm -hmm. But honestly, just this week, I helped a parent create a morning checklist for their child, which actually we can link in the show notes if we want to give our listeners an example. How old was the, was the um, child? She was actually six years old. Six. Okay, cool. So just so everybody knows that it, it probably I'll link it in the show notes, just like Leah said, it'll pertain probably to kids like four to eight, probably if you need it yep. for a guideline. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And, the, and then just to kind of keep going with this, one of the reasons why I really like a checklist is I find that many parents tell me that they say the directions over and 
over to their children and it becomes exhausting. But a visual is actually considered a type of prompt. And a prompt is something we do to increase the likelihood that a child would make the right or correct response. And the different type of prompts that I usually tell parents is that there's a verbal prompt, a visual prompt, a gesture prompt, or a demonstration of the desired response that we want the child to do. So if we want the child to brush their teeth, make their bed, we can model it if we think they don't know the skill or have the visual prompt on the checklist to explain what our expectations are each morning. Yeah, definitely. So to break it down a little bit for you guys, what Leah's talking about is uh, verbal instruction is you obviously telling them what to do, a visual is showing them, and then uh, demonstration is obviously you are modeling it for them. So for brushing your teeth, like she said, a, vis a verbal prompt would be telling them, Larkin, go brush your teeth. A visual prompt would be maybe like a little picture of a kid brushing his teeth on the chart or the visual schedule that you've created. And demonstration would be you show them how to brush their teeth. Did I kind of just dissect yeah. that a little bit better? Okay. Cool. Yeah. Thank cool. you so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I always say what's really cool is that instead of, again, a parent repeating themselves again and again, and that's one of the most common complaints I kind of hear, um, a parent can now simply just point to the checklist visual. And definitely in the you know signs of applied behavior analysis, visual prompts are easier to fade than verbal prompts over time. So systematically, it is something that we as a field recommend using. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. A lot of times I find that parents do not understand how these routines at school are established at the beginning of each school year and how they are maintained. So to teach a routine, and I'm going to tell you kind of the teacher perspective, teachers typically clearly state the expectations verbally and visually by having the steps on the board. So there's two different ways students see and they hear the information. And each routine is broken down step by step. That's another really important tip I give my parents. Then teachers model the routine. They provide feedback when the students practice the different steps in the routine. And lastly, they reinforce and continue to reinforce the students who are doing the routine all throughout the year. So behind the scenes, when you see a class walking, quote unquote, properly in the hallway, there's really a lot of teaching that goes on behind the scenes to make this happen. And it's kind of funny because even though it's December, I still hear teachers all around my school reminding their students of the rules of the hallway before entering the hallway at times. So we need to remember that sometimes kids need those reminders and that's okay. Um, and I was going to say, too, some of the other things that they do is, you know, for kids in preschool till second grade, there might be some, you know, lineup songs or some visuals that are used um, for third to fifth grade teachers. And I've been a third, fourth and fifth grade teacher for the past couple of years in different settings. Um, we a lot of times implement different contests, such as Secret Walker, where we pick one student in secret before we go out into the hallway. And then if that student has proper, you know, whatever it is, walking in the hallway, they get a different reward. But it's kind of cool because everyone's on their toes because they don't know if they're going to be 
the secret walker for the day. I feel so like that's, that's that's like hitting a tiny bit on um like pivot praise. <laughs> yeah. Like your pivot praise to uh the other kids around like, Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think that that's, it's, it's a fun way to kind of reinforce the skill. Um, so again, like to relate this to the home setting, I always ask parents, like, do they think it's their job to teach kids how to walk to the car, to teach kids how to, you know, walk to a restaurant table or to and from a grocery store? Because I know as teachers, we know that it's our job that we need to teach and we need to practice these type of routines. Um, But I don't think that parents naturally think that it's something that they need to teach. They think it's kind of just automatic. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I can answer this as a parent myself, but keep in mind, everyone, I mean, I am married to a BCBA, but Um, So I feel like we kind of have a blend of this. I guess I don't start off on a routine or structure. Maybe when we first have a baby, I kind of let the baby decide when they want to eat, when they want to sleep, when they want to be awake. I have never followed a book on how to get them to go to bed. And I've honestly never stuck to a schedule. I kind of let them create that schedule themselves. So in this aspect, it is happening without intentionally teaching them. But I, look back now and maybe if I told Tyler like hey I read this book on how to get your babies to sleep he likely would be all on board to follow that system but that's just not how I roll so he just kind of goes along with it but as far as toddlers go or our big kids, I realize that his systems and routine schedules that he puts into place for them are really crucial in helping them navigate and know like what happens next. So they kind of don't get anxiety about what they're doing that night or when they're going to eat. Although this is kind of hard for me to realize because I maybe a little bit more go with the flow and maybe other parents are too, but I never want my kids to feel like they're a slave to a schedule. And I feel like sometimes other parents feel that way too. I want them to be flexible, which they are. And even if you ask me right now, what time is bedtime for my kids? I I really couldn't give you a straight answer and likely Ty wouldn't be able to answer completely either because some nights it's 7.30 if we have soccer, some nights it's 8.45 if they want to stay up and watch Star Wars and does their behavior suffer in the morning? Probably, and Tyler would love to chart that if I let him, but um, as far as some type of routine and schedule, even though it is December, I still remind our girls who are five and seven in the car on the way home that remember when we get home, we're going to hang up our backpack, then we're going to go pick out a snack. And then when the clock says 3.30, we're going to take out our folder and do our homework. I'm sure that maybe by March, they will know the schedule and I won't have to remind them, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's so important to teach that flexibility. Like life, right, does not happen on a schedule and we need to be okay with that. And I, I don't think visual schedules are needed for everything or that you need this strict schedule for everything. But I do find that at times they are helpful tools for kids and parents. And honestly, the reason why that is, it's because visual schedules are clear, they provide structure, and it's easy to go back to. And a lot of times it serves as a great teaching tool. And I always say too, that the visual schedule should be in a place that's visible for all to see. And in saying that, visual schedules should be faded over time systematically. 
Mm-hmm. Like when you see that your kid is no longer referring to the visual schedule for, you know, I don't know, put, like brushing her teeth and making her bed and she can do the task independently over a certain amount of time, it is appropriate to take down, take down that visual schedule. And if we see that a child is starting to regress, if they start stop brushing their teeth every morning, it's okay to put it back up for a little bit of time until we get that routine back in action. And it really just depends on your child's behavior and their needs. So, I mean, one of the major things I will say is that visual schedules can and they should change over time. Tasks can be lumped together, especially as children mature and more expectations can be included in our checklist or routines. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really good point to note because we still have our family expectations, you know, the rules governing like our family household up in our house. But I think that if I were to ask the girls what they are, they could probably rattle them off. So yeah, I mean, just you don't have to have family expectations or systems up everywhere, like in the bathroom, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, you know, like it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So some parents like think that they need these lists or schedules all over the place, just like in the classroom, because if you walk into a teacher, classroom, a lot of times probably in the beginning of the year, they might have, especially maybe the younger classrooms, like this is the schedule for the day and this is what we're doing. So yeah, I mean that when it comes down to a little more structure is needed, then you're able to just fade it out. And this is also how we, Tyler and I like to talk about using like a positive reinforcement system or a sticker chart. It's just that it's, it's simply a tool that you have in your back pocket when you need to create some type of, you know, behavior model modification and changing behavior, right? Yeah, absolutely. You guys, you guys nailed it. (laughs) So awesome, Leah. Well, this has been all amazing information. And I know I definitely took away some great stuff that likely Tyler has told me time and time again, but it's something about hearing it from someone else. It just maybe like resonates a little bit better with you. Um, I feel like sometimes it's common in marriage or even with your mom and dad, they tell you to do something and you kind of push it to the wayside, but then you hear somebody else talk about it and you're like, wow, that totally makes sense. So (laughs) I think my husband says the same thing. It's so funny. Yeah. It's just going to be great for our listeners too, because they're going to be like, oh yeah, Tyler did talk about that in three other episodes, but maybe it resonates a little bit better with hearing it from you, Leah. So that's great. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I mean, I love you guys and I've been an active listener, so I'm excited. Um, So this has definitely been such a cool opportunity so thank cool. you so much. Yeah. So let's um let people know where can they find you and connect with you on social media um, or anywhere else. Where can they find you? Sure. So um, you can first find me on Parent Tools on Instagram. So that's my, what is it called? Name? <laughs> yeah, your handle. Yeah. yeah, my handle. So Parent Tools. And so that's really the best place for behavior or parent advice, um, the best place place to connect. If you are an educator who are listening, I have a lot of cool free resources and reviews at my teachertalkforall.edublog.org. And that has different things that are probably really good for, you know, parents and educators. And also, I think we talked about that you can download my free visual home schedules linked in the show notes below. So, um, I'll yeah, link those your, are kind of the different places. 
Yeah. And I'll link your Instagram handle and then I'll link um, that website too, that people, so they're not like listening in the car, trying to jot that down. I'll just have that linked in the show notes. So that's cool. awesome. awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. Well, great, Leah. It was great connecting with you and thank you so much. I'm oh, gonna... thank you guys. All right, guys. I'm just going to be real here. I, for some reason, can't seem to get our outro to play to end this podcast. So I just want to give a shout out to Leah. Thank you so much, Leah, for coming on Behavior Buff Podcast and talking with me. Some amazing tools, great takeaways. If you guys thought this information was helpful, I'd love to know. Take a screenshot of yourself listening to the podcast. Tag Leah on Parent Tools on Instagram. Tag us, Behavior Change Collective. I can't wait to hear from you guys. And don't forget to leave us a review. I'd love to be able to feature you and and read your review on our next podcast. Have a great rest of your day. And let us know if you're having any behavioral problems with your kids coming into the holidays. We'd love to brainstorm with you. Bye for now.